Hello, this is Fred Ottman, Tugboat Typhoon, the Shockmaster, the B-A-double-D, Big Steel Man. And you're listening to BBGWrestling.com. And welcome to another episode of Turnchuckle on BBGWrestling.com. I am Pablo, and I want to thank you all for all tuning into last week's episode with Trevor Murdoch, uh, one of our highest-rated episodes, and uh, lots of great feedback on that one. Um, this week, I am joined once again by wrestling author, journalist, historian, and all-round really nice dude, Brian Solomon. Hello. Hi, Pablo. How are you? I'm good. Um... Um, I've eaten too much candy. It's Halloween, so um, you know I've, I've, you know I'm, I'm not going to give any to any kids, um, you know, because you know social distancing. So in a way, I'm doing the more responsible thing by eating it myself. Um, but I also have a bit of an upset stomach at the moment. But uh, apart from that, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm okay. I guess that's one way to look at it. I'll, I'll try to justify it that way too. I want to say too, uh, you know, you're, you're mentioning you just talked to Trevor Murdoch in the last show. It brings to mind uh, the fact that I'd have to say probably one of the best career moves that I ever made while I was at WWE was choosing not to go into a strip club with Trevor Murdoch and Randy Orton. (laughs) Oh, the stories, though. (laughs) You know, um, the thing is, okay, so as a journalist and a writer at WWE, were the wrestlers trusting of you i mean i know that you were writing specifically for their magazine but was there free reign to sort of write about real life stories without the wrestler knowing well sometimes they would you know wrestlers can sometimes be distrustful by nature right because you know it's that kind of a business and you have to be careful and even if you work for the company sometimes they wouldn't always be sure especially if you were talking on the phone Like, I remember one of my first interviews I had to do for WWF or WWF magazine was Rikishi, and he had no idea who I was because I was brand new. So, like, he sort of thought he at first he thought he was a rib. He wasn't sure. He had to check with people to make sure that I really was who I said I was. And that that happened a couple of times where I remember one time I I, we were doing a magazine on The Undertaker and I wanted to get comments from other legends, right, talking about The Undertaker. It's just as a way of putting Undertaker over, putting him in their category, right? So some of the legends were people that we currently had under contract, and some of them weren't. And one of the people I called who was not working for the company yet at the time was Dusty Rhodes, who I think was just pretty much home at that time, not really doing much of anything. This would have been like around, um, I don't know, 04 or something like that, right before they brought him in on the creative team. And he completely thought it was a rib. Like he could not believe that somebody from WWE was calling him just to ask him questions about The Undertaker. Like he thought somebody had to be had to be ribbing him. And I had to really jump through a lot of hoops to prove that I wasn't. So but once they trusted you, they trusted you. Like I also had cases where wrestlers would tell me exactly what you just said, where they'd be like, you know what? You know my character better than I do. Uh, just write, you know, just write what I would say. And, and you know, sometimes 
Sometimes they would say, let me look at it first. Sometimes they didn't even care. They would just be like, I, I completely trust you. Just write what you think my character would say, and I totally trust you. Well, and we talked about this a little bit last time, but that sort of 2004-2005 period was when, um, I guess, the Legends brand started to come into effect in WWE. And, uh, you know, Jack Pacific were on their own back, reaching out to names who had nothing to do with the company for a long time. I mean, th those classic superstars, action figures, people forget now how history-making all that was. You know, Bret Hart, Ultimate Warrior, Bruno Sammartino, Demolition, you know, names who had, you know, were on certainly on the outs with the company. Um, probably, and some of them probably wouldn't have worked directly with the company itself or with Vince McMahon at the time, but because Jax was a separate thing, you know, that's how we saw all those uh, all those action figures. So when you reached out to guys like, you know, Randy Savage, etc., um, do you think that, you know, it because it was a separate thing to just Vince directly calling them, um, they were a little bit more receptive, even though it had the WWE name behind it? I think so, you know, because sometimes, like with the Randy Savage thing, sometimes it was very clear that we were kind of doing our own thing. And it wasn't always like I, I was not really acting on behalf of Vince McMahon, you know. I mean, like people didn't always realize how detached we were. I mean, I remember, you know, the Legends program was a big reason why my WWE Legends book was even greenlit. I was, I was so glad about that happening because – that book may not have happened without it. Like I, I pitched that book originally, like somewhere around 2000 or 2001, and it went nowhere until the Legends program started. And they thought, hey, this would be a great thing to tie into WWE Legends, just have a book all about the Legends. And, and that's partly why I was even able to do that book. But I remember when I was working on that book, for example, one of the people I called because I thought he would have a lot of great stories, and he does about those early WWF days, was Gary Michael Capetta, the the uh, ring announcer. And yeah. the the well, you, uh, is that a good groan or a bad groan? Oh no no, a, a, a very good groan. He's uh, one of the best wrestling biographies I've ever read was Gary that, Michael Capetta's. Yeah, that is why I called him. Yeah. Um, I ordered that book um, while I was working at WWE, and I actually expensed it as, as a work expense, you know, and I read <laughs> Well, I did that a lot, and I loved it, and I called him, and I said, you know, I would love to talk to you about, you know, some things from my book, and, you know, you were there. You saw all this great stuff, and, you know, he was one, he, he a nice guy, but he was one of these people that – he was operating under the idea that I was like some like Vince McMahon stooge, you know, and I remember and, you know, he had a lot of heat with WWE and he didn't leave there on good terms and he didn't have a lot of nice things to say about the company. And he immediately went into this whole thing of, oh, is, is Vince putting you up to this? And, you know, I, I, I saw that you that uh, that uh, he, I remember him saying to me, um, you know, I know that uh, Vince read my book because one of the people that ordered my book was Ed Cohen, who, you know, <laughs> It was one of Vince's right hand guys. And I know Vince wouldn't order it in his own name, but he had Ed Cohen order it. And, you know, I know who you are because you you also ordered my book. And I'm going like, whoa, like you're giving me way too much credit here. Like I'm some plugged in guy. I'm like I'm like a 30 year old, you know, uh, like guy on the first floor just trying to sort of like make a living and pay my mortgage. I have no idea what you're talking about. But he he long story short is he wouldn't talk to me over that. He, he just thought, 
you know, I represented WWE in his eyes. And so he wouldn't talk to me. And that happens sometimes. But they just don't they don't they didn't understand a lot of times that we were just a bunch of a bunch of clowns doing our own thing on the first floor. That was it. It's such a, it's such a shame as well, because things have changed quite dramatically in terms of. I guess wrestlers understanding now and obviously legends contracts. And I mean, I've, there are still some names even today, like Ollie Anderson. I mean, he said even back then that he would never uh, take a penny from Vince McMahon. And I think that was part of the reason why he wasn't in the hall of fame. Why I think WWE probably decided not to put him directly in the hall of fame or include him on the horseman DVD on the cover and all that kind of thing. Um, but it seems like everyone else to a degree you know, I can't think of any names that didn't, you know, except, you know, obviously Owen Hart, but they still did a, a Blu-ray of him um, and the rest of the family sort of got involved. But I can't really think of many names who are completely on the outs with WWE or just chose not to go back at all. Um, it's very rare. Yeah, it's very rare because most people will mend fences when there's money to be made. You know, Ole Anderson, like you mentioned, he is one of the only people that really... It really, truly seems to be, uh, a no, you know, there's nothing fixing that relationship. And I'm sure you know the story about, you know, going back to Vince buying Georgia Championship Wrestling and the Briscoes kind of like leaving Ole out in the cold and a lot of the bad blood there. Um, there's a story in the book Sex, Lies and Headlocks, which has been repeated a lot, where Vince and Ole and had it out at the at the WTBS um, studios. Have you ever heard <laughs> yeah. that story? Do you know the story I'm talking about? Um, I, I know that I did read it in. Well, um, yeah, I did have sex lives and headlocks a long time ago, but I know there was a there was a clash. And wasn't it just did Oli say that? Did Oli threaten to kill him or am I just? Well, <laughs> well what, what are the language parameters on this podcast? Ah, you can say anything. It's fine. OK, yeah. so the story was <laughs> that. So Oli was felt really burned because he did not want to sell the company, Georgia Championship Wrestling, to Vince. And but he got kind of screwed by, you know, supposedly because the Briscoe brothers, they owned like majority shares and they wound up selling it right out from under him without his permission. And he was really burned by that. And supposedly Vince showed Vince showed up Vince and Linda. They went to the WTBS studios down in Atlanta. You know, they were going to be doing TV there. And Vince yeah. had heard that Oli had a real problem with him. And he actually supposedly brought Gorilla Monsoon with him as sort of like backup in case things got bad. And supposedly Oli was there waiting for them and they kind of got into it and it wound up getting to the point where I think Oli said something like, uh, fuck you, Vince, and fuck your wife too, something like that. <laughs> and she was standing right there. Now, I don't think it actually came to blows. I think it got pretty damn heated. But, you know, Oli is one of those people who I think is really and truly dead to the McMahon organization. I think so. And I, but I think it's I think it's mutual. So I don't think Oli, and Oli probably made his money, to be fair. I know it sounds cynical, but I think whenever you see guys that really stand their ground and don't budge, I think a lot of times it is because they are independently um, taken care of financially and they really don't need the WWE. That's how it works, sadly. Did, did it shock you that Jerry Briscoe got let go then? Nothing shocks me in that regard anymore. I mean, you know, you always hear stories about, well, this guy is in there for life, right, and help. Vince Sr. had his guys like Blassie and 
Arnold Skoland and uh, people that he always told Vince Jr. to take care of no matter what. And, you know, you hear that like Vince has guys like that, too, you know, like Pat Patterson and people that are that are lifers. And I guess I thought that Briscoe would have been one of those guys. But I don't know. I mean, um, I know he had both most recently been working as a talent scout for them. I don't know how much of that was like an honorary title and how much was actually on the boots, uh, boots on the ground work that he was doing. Uh, I think it's kind of a crummy thing to do. It kind of goes against the wrestling tradition of promoters taking care of these loyal old timers, but uh, not surprised. No, not surprised. I mean, it, it's kind of weird when someone as loyal as Jerry Briscoe and, you know, it could be argued. I mean, it's it almost certain really that WrestleMania wouldn't have happened without the sale of Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um it sort of like seems weird to me that like you know he's not even I don't think he's even under a legends contract anymore. Whereas Billy Graham, who openly on Facebook you know will say awful things still about Vince and WWE, <laughs> is under a legends contract and currently has a figure in Walmart. Um, it just I don't know. It just seems a bit all over the place in terms of like who they signed, why they signed them, etc. And I mean, it, it could be argued that Billy Graham is more marketable than Jerry Briscoe in terms of action figures and merchandise and stuff like that. I think it definitely could be argued. I also think, and I learned this while participating in the legends program at the time that, you know, Vince really does have this bias, which I guess is sort of understandable where he doesn't really see value in guys in terms of in-ring talent uh, of legends you know looking back at their career he doesn't see value in guys that never drew a lot of money for him mm. and you know the briscoes were never a big thing in the wwf and especially i mean god i don't even think they regularly ever worked there until after they sold georgia championship wrestling so you know, he he'll look at guys like, for example, he would look for sure at guys like the Bushwhackers or the Honky Tonk Man um, as much, much more valuable and worthy of Legends contracts than people like Arn Anderson or Steve Kern or, you know, the Freebirds, uh, you know, other than the fact that Michael Hayes works there because they didn't draw money for him. It It, you know, you just have to look at the Hall of Fame, you know. It blows my mind. It blows my mind that like Leilani Kai and a lot of those ladies from that period. I mean, I just interviewed Princess Victoria recently, and she wouldn't go in even if she was offered. And I think some of a lot of the women feel like that at the moment. Um, you know, because I think they feel that Vince did them wrong and you know sided with Mueller on a lot of things. And um, but it just seems like there's a generation of lady wrestlers who should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, I, 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 how do you feel about the Legacy Hall of Fame? I, I hate it. Um, it's such a cop-out to just include yeah. a ton of names that just because, I mean, okay, they're de largely deceased and they're probably not going to sell tickets by coming to see their family members and stuff like that. But I feel that the Hall of Fame, it, it should be able to mix sort of the relatively obscure or the old names that you know that that year when Antonio Noki and Gorgeous George uh, got put in the Hall of Fame and Mad Dog Bichon it wasn't a very audience friendly Hall of Fame because Antonio Noki couldn't speak English um, Mad Dog Bichon had probably severe Alzheimer's because he re repeated the same stories over and over again um, and Gorgeous George's ex-wife was like 98 years old <laughs> um, so and I think, you 
I think yeah, that's yeah. They've learned from that, unfortunately, that from experiences <laughs> like that, not to do that. No, really, because the, they're looking at the Hall of Fame show now more as a TV show. And what do we do to maximize it as a TV show? So I think gone are the days of guys like from the 60s and, you know, or 70s or getting their own like special inductions. I think they're really focused on Hulkamania era and attitude era guys because they're trying to market the show and I'm of two minds on the legacy thing. I mean, it's a way of trying to remedy certain things and get people in there that it makes the hall of fame look illegitimate that they're not in there, you know, because you're not going to sit there and go, okay, now we're going to do a big induction for farmer burns, you know, like that, that's just not going to happen. So I also think one thing about the legacy, because it bothered me, for example, when I saw Lord Alfred Hayes go in with the legacy, because yeah. I thought, okay, here's a guy who was there at the height of the WWF. He was part of it. He was Vince's like co-anchor and all this. He's a WWF guy. Um, why wouldn't he get his own induction? And then I, so even though he's you know he's passed, I, I realized part of it is with the legacy stuff. Those are people that are not getting legends contracts. Okay, so if they want to find a way to just attach someone's name to the Hall of Fame without necessarily even getting permission of the family or doing any kind of compensation or anything, they do the Legacy Hall of Fame. And I remember that too, because I remember Sean Stasiak being really pissed off because he was petitioning for, for his father, Stan Stasiak, to go in. And they wound up putting him in, but under the Legacy banner. So it was just sort of like, you know, it was like under the radar. And and, and, and that and I, that I think was why, because there's no, there's no kind of compensation involved. I don't think they even get the rings or the plaques oh. or anything like that, no. you know. No. And, to, and to be fair, a lot of them who the, who have been put in, they probably don't have any contactable family members at this point. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the other name, uh, Luna Vachon, like, I find that insane that she is in the legacy wing as well, because, you know, she's, when you look at the ladies who, from the 90s, Sherry and people like that, you know, they're, they're all in the Hall of Fame, Medusa, um, there's no reason why Luna couldn't go in as well. Right. That threw me off, too. But I, I think, again, that also speaks to the, the situation where they probably didn't offer a Legends contract. There was no the family was not contacted and they were just looking for a woman to add to the list, unfortunately. And you know, because she certainly would have been somebody who was eligible for the full induction treatment, especially when they want to do like one woman per year. She would have been great for that. Uh, but I think it was it was a decision based on contractual stuff. So, speaking of uh, the Legends book, um, and I started reading some of the uh, the SmackDown magazines again. It'd been a, a good while since I'd read any of them. Now, obviously, your your fingerprints are all over it in terms of like a lot of the old school stuff, like the reviews and in the back page there would always be a picture from the archives and stuff like that. So, for my sanity and just because i've always wondered and i'm sure a lot of people would be really interested in this as well what does the wwe photo archive look like like is it just a big warehouse is it you know or is it has it all been digitized or i could tell you what it looked like when i was there so what it looked like by 2007 now when i first got there let's say by 2000 it was it's not as big as you would think you know because first of all it was all slides back then and physical slides and um they don't take up a lot of room so this is like let's say we're talking the year 2000 
they had only been doing their own photography starting in 1982. So you got about 18 years worth of photography. And so it was basically a series of very tall metal file cabinets, you know, like those like five feet tall ones, basically, Mm -hmm. and just filled with hanging files of contact sheets with slides in them. And they would generally be organized by talent's name, but I think they also had some that were dedicated to specific events. But the easiest way to find stuff was by the talent's name. Um, Later on, like as I was there, they started absorbing other photo collections because like anytime they would buy a video library, what people don't realize is a lot of the time they would also get a photo library with it. You just didn't really hear about that. Like I remember when they bought championship wrestling from Florida from Mike Graham, the video stuff, pallets of other stuff came into the office, like photos and memorabilia and things. Now, towards the end of the time when I was there, uh, they were really working hard to digitize everything. And they had already switched probably by about 05 or 06 or so to completely digital photography, maybe even earlier. Um, so they very often weren't even getting new slides in. It was becoming all digital. And I'm sure today, I mean, I would assume that all those slides have been completely digitized. Like, I don't think they're accessing any physical slides anymore. I don't believe, I think it's probably the entire thing going back to 82 and whatever else they have is all digitized. Was there anything, um, two part question, was there anything really shocking that you know that in terms of a picture that you like didn't expect to see was there anything that you weren't allowed to use you know because i mean obviously somewhere the art footage is in you know, titan towers and you know under lock and key um and the pwi photo archive how does that compare i've never seen the pwi photo archive with my own eyes although i would love to it's down in Pennsylvania. I was supposed to be going down there before COVID, and so I haven't been able to do it. Um, so I really don't know. I mean, the, th- the difference is their archive is, to me, far more impressive historically because they have, you know, those magazines in one form or another have been in business since the 50s. And even before that, they've collected so much historical stuff going back to the 19th century that they have. Um, You know, I would say like their modern photography, certainly in the last like probably stuff from the last 30, 40 years is probably not as high quality photography as what WWE's photographers shoot. Uh, But WWE's photographers also cheat because they have strobe lighting that helps them. Um, They actually have I don't know if you know about this. The lighting in the arena, at least when I was there, is timed to the cameras so that. (laughs) In a way that is not picked up on television. It is lightning quick. Anytime they snap a picture, there is a millisecond flash that goes off. This is true. And Tom Buchanan. Light- I interviewed Tom Buchanan and he did mention that. Yeah. Yes, it's true. And that is why their pictures always look so much better. But you see, when I was there, they would always get annoyed with me because I would say, you know, I kind of like the PWI pictures better because they're less <laughs> polished. They feel more real, like guys are sweaty. They don't always look their best. They're they're making weird faces. I, I'm like that. That to me sells it more. So it sells the sports aspect of it a little bit more. Um, but the but you know the uh, so I don't know what the PWI stuff actually looks like. I do know they had a flood there years back that damaged a lot of things, and I thought that was oh. hard. Like I think yeah. maybe 
like about 15 years ago or so. It was while I was working at WWE. Um, as far as, you know, unex stuff we couldn't use, that would come up from time to time for sure. Like I can tell you, for example, something that pops in my head when China had her cosmetic surgery on her face, mm. she asked us not to anymore use photos of her from before the surgery, even historically. So we would we would do things like that. Um, God, I mean, of course, anything that had the old WWF logo, there was a period where we couldn't use it. Um, that that sort of thing. Um, I mean, surprising. Yeah, I would always love. I would love to just dig through the files just for fun when I when I when it was downtime, just looking for weird things. And that was sort of why I introduced that retro photo department, the back page in SmackDown Magazine, because I kept finding these cool things like the picture of Andre the Giant standing in front of the Arc de Triomphe. I was like, my God, we have to use this. Or the one. <laughs> That you mentioned to me about Hawk, you know, having the makeup applied to him during a, a commercial. And I, I just thought, like, God, this stuff is just sitting here. It's never going to be used for anything. Like, what would be – what purpose would, would this now have? Uh, let's use it, you know? So I, I tried to do stuff like that on purpose. Were there any um, – because I, I know that you know about the you know the P number promos and everything like that. Um, and they would also – they would do promos of, like, office stuff as well which is like if you're a completionist you would have to have a promo of like rex lardner and Wait, you know who you know um so did you come across just like random pictures of like office stuff <laughs> so i feel like you're i feel like you're reading my mind here or you spoke to somebody because i literally took the rex lardner 8x10 as a joke and just tacked it up on the bulletin board in our department just to be like, who the hell is this guy? Other than that, he's Ring Lardner's son, which is pretty cool. But just and I remember, you know, we would find stuff like that, those like weird eight by tens of like, you know, office people like like executives. So I remember we had the we had the Rex Lardner eight by ten. Have you ever seen Rex Lardner or the or the eight by ten? I've seen the eight by ten, and there's a couple of different ones of different. He's always the name that like stands out because that was the first one I came across. And uh, my friend Michael is a big collector of those P numbers, and it's ridiculous how much some of them go for, like the original ones. Cool. Um, and yeah, it was just he had to have it. And uh, don't get me wrong, it's not exactly framed on his wall or anything like that. Well, so so he's not the most, you know, he kind of looked like a turtle, <laughs> sort of, like a turtle wearing a toupee. And we, we didn't know who he was or anything. I guess he was an executive there in the 90s, briefly. So we, we took this thing. We had it hanging on the bulletin board. And I, I distinctly remember one day Shane McMahon comes into the office. He's And he already thought we were all just nuts. You know, he just couldn't relate to us at all. And he walked by the bulletin board and he just stopped. Because, you know, he was he was like probably like in his 20s when Rex Lardner was working there. And he stopped and he looked and he's just like he just couldn't understand why did we have this? He's like, why do you have this Rex Lardner picture hanging up here? I, I, he just didn't get the humor we were going for. He was just completely baffled by this picture of Rex Lardner that we had hanging up next to like Randy Savage and the Killer Bees <laughs> and everybody else. And, and there he is, Rex Lardner in the middle of all of it. I do find that it's, you know, you guys and the, um, I mean, it's a lot more the wrestlers now because it's a generational thing that they understand that there are a lot of really nerdy, geeky 
you know, sort of also sort of ironic fun wrestling fans who genu- genuinely love Mantor and things like that. You know, I I I think if like you asked Vince, you know, let's do uh, um the unseen pictures of Mantor, he would be like. <laughs> why it would be like an insane popular thing on the website you know um you know i love that the website started digging through old photographs because i always said that they could have made a just a hardback book of all these amazing unseen photographs but obviously the website's become a you know i think there should almost be a separate website just for like a gallery of pictures i think that would be really cool yeah i think so too and i i also think pwi should do that and if Mm. kevin McElvaney is listening to this i'm saying it again i think a coffee table book of their stuff would be just beyond belief. You know, even if they went through ECW press or something, it would certainly be something to do. But, but yeah, there's been such a turnaround in recent years where the stuff when I was a kid that used to be called, you know, wrestle crap and everybody would <laughs> laugh at it, spin the uh, wheel, make the deal and these things. Now it's like people talk about it. Like it's like, like Dory Funk versus Jack Briscoe, you know, like it's just the most, <laughs> amazing thing you know because they grew up on it and i do think sometimes there's a lack of understanding like i I agree with you i think vince would be baffled by a lot of it but i now find it humorous because the company in a lot of ways has picked up on this sense of irony and so now they'll do a lot of things where they make fun of gimmicks from the past and whenever i see them do that though i'll be watching it and i'll be going yeah but you guys created that like like, don't don't try to play off on us like you're one of the cool kids now and you're laughing with us at this stuff this was your idea you thought this was cool okay and in 20 years from now half the stuff that's on raw now you're going to be making fun of so like I, i i always call bs when they try to like take that attitude of like standing there and laughing with the internet smarks at the stuff that they themselves created this is true. And, and the thing is, though, as someone who genuinely loved um, have all of the pogs that WWF released in 1995, for example, you know, and I've got, you know, probably far too much Giant Gonzalez merchandise and uh, all of the uh, Lex Luger call to action campaign stuff like I have all just got it. Um, I'm hoping it comes before the election. But I got uh, finally after 15 years of searching for one a Mr. Backlund for president uh, pin. Um, which I will be wearing with pride. Um, something tells me that he won't uh, be successful this year, but um, you well, never we know. Can't um, work, so you know. <laughs> um, well, you said well, WWE Hall of Fame. I mean, did you come across any pictures of Trump when you were going through stuff? No, no. But I think part of the reason why what I learned when I was there, because I was there during the whole WrestleMania thing with him and Vince, was he's he was very protective of his likeness and his name. And I believe, if unless I'm mistaken, he never would sign off on that, on allowing them to use his name or likeness beyond the actual event. So, like, for example, I remember when he was at WrestleMania and he and Hall of Fame and well, no, Hall of Fame was later. But when he was at WrestleMania, um, we after WrestleMania was over, we were not allowed to use his name to market any of the materials. Like, I don't even think we could use his name to advertise the DVD of it when it came out. Like, it was really weird. Um, And so I don't really remember there being a lot of Trump stuff. I remember even when he was backstage at Mania, everybody being told to just leave him alone, that he he didn't want to interact with anyone unless you had business with him. He didn't want to be, like, taking pictures, signing autographs. It was almost like he was there almost like out out of like holding his nose you know what i mean right 
Which of I'm, all I'm ki- to do that is is really ironic, but still. I'm ki- I'm kind of shocked because of the long term friendship with Trump and Vince, and you know I, I've got some stuff um, from Mania Four and Five, uh, Trump Plaza stuff. I bought a uh, for Mania. Um, I want to say four um, employees got given um, these key fobs, you know, for their hotel keys because they stayed at the hotel. And I bought Jimmy Hart's WrestleMania four key fob. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so it has Trump on it. And um, there's a um, for Mania five. There's a Hogan and Savage two separate pins um, and employees at the hotel were wearing them and i guess you know they decided years later to sell them on ebay and stuff like that so i've got them for really cheap but like a a online auctioneer was selling them um a set of them and i joined in on the auction and someone had just bid four hundred dollars for them and i'm just like what like that's insane and they said, oh, no, $400 was like 10 minutes ago. It's up to like $650 now. And I was like, I would sell mine right now for $649 if anyone wants to buy them. I'm not that precious about keeping hold of them. But, um, you know, I've, I have a feeling that it was because of who was selling them, um, you know, and he could attract a more, I don't know, affluent uh, clientele to be able to buy some of this junk. Um, yeah, um, I- I think the difference with WrestleMania 23 was, you know, the four and five and things like that. The, he was hosting it at his venue. He was really very um, invested in the success of it and things like that. It was his business was connected to it. But with 23, it was more like this was post apprentice. This was a very different era. He was being courted as a celebrity to add some shine to WrestleMania. So it was a very different dynamic. It was more like, please. Mr. Trump, will you come to our show and make it look like a big deal? Will you give Vince McMahon the rub by doing this whole you're fired thing with him and all that stuff? Like Trump was definitely the bigger star than anybody on the WWF roster. And I don't know if that was the case in 1988. Do you know what I mean? True. I mean, it became the highest grossing pay-per-view, didn't it? Mania 23. Yeah, that was a weird one because I was there for that and it was – it was the interesting thing. It was actually the all time. I could be off on this. I'm pretty sure it was the all time company attendance record, but they could not announce it as such because it would blow away the WrestleMania three kayfabe thing. So in other words, like WrestleMania three, they announced it as ninety three thousand. It was actually something like seventy eight thousand. And Wembley Stadium for SummerSlam 92 was something like 80,000. So Wembley Stadium, SummerSlam 92 had been the attendance record. They could not admit it because they'd have to admit that they were lying about WrestleMania 3. But then <laughs> but then WrestleMania 23 broke all records. I think it hit something like it was in like the upper 80,000s or something. It, it was broken recently, but it was the all time company attendance record. But they just could not announce it. <laughs> Yeah. The thing is, though, Mania 3 was still the, legit the indoor attendance record either way, wasn't it, at that point, even if it was 78,000. Right, um, which is weird. Like, why would they make up a number? <laughs> oh, no, actually, I do know why they made up a number. It was So, yeah, it was. So even if, we, even if they had just said 78,000, not only would that have been the all-time WWF attendance record, that would have been the all-time North American pro wrestling attendance record, period. Um, ever, 
You know, the record before that, I believe, was Ric Flair and Kerry Von Erich at Texas Stadium in 84, um, possibly. But um, the the reason that they picked that weird 93,000 number is because just a few weeks before that, I think it was the Rolling Stones, they had played Pontiac Silverdome and they had done a number that was in that vicinity. So they wanted to top the Rolling Stones number. That's why they created that number. Yeah, didn't the Pope do the Silver Dome as well? And they outdrew the Pope. So the Pope beat them, I think. I oh, think. did <laughs> Yeah, he did. The Pope beat them, and I think they allowed that because they said the the indoor attendance record for sports and entertainment. That was that was what they uh, see, so yeah. let Pope get away with it. <laughs> it's all in the small print. Um, well, I was just thinking because you were you were talking about Alfred Hayes. Now I know that he did an interview for was it the SmackDown magazine for the TNT review? Um, oh boy, it I, was like it was a retrospective on Tuesday Night Titans, and yes. Alfred Hayes did get interviewed for that. And I was just wondering if you were responsible for that because I know he was at um he was at Access for Mania Seventeen in Houston because he lived in Texas. And that was um, maybe two years before he passed away. So I was wondering if you ever got a chance to meet him. I did. I met him that day at Access. Oh. And, and I okay. also was responsible for interviewing him for the TNT story. So the TNT story, it was one of my ideas. It was not SmackDown. It was pre-SmackDown magazine. I think it was in Raw magazine. Mm-hmm. And we. Uh, I also interviewed Steve Taylor for that because he was like heavily involved with all the all the shooting and everything. And he told me how basically everyone was like heavily on cocaine while they were making that. And <laughs> I think Tom Buchanan would probably back me up on that, um, uh-huh. that that was the case. But with that show, which explains a lot, but, but Lord Alfred, um, he was so interesting. Cause yeah, I did talk to him for that story. And I remember him telling me, and I don't know if he was working me, maybe he was, I don't know, but I remember him telling me how um, he actually was a Lord that um, basically he was one of these, you know, uh, members of, of where, where he had inherited a title, but no money, where, where basically he came from a family where long ago, maybe they were influential or important, but they had long since lost any of their notoriety and, and gone completely broke, but they still had that title. So here he is, he's got this Lord title but he he, he has he doesn't have a, a pot to piss in. So so he, that's partly why he became a wrestler. But I think he even told me that he actually he owned a castle and all this crazy stuff. Now, he could have been working me. I don't know. But it's a hell of a story. That that really is. Um, what was the company that because um, he got let go because the budget? Well, he wouldn't take a pay cut in 95. Um, so he left. And then there was that. Was it you? It wasn't UWF, was it? Or was it? What, who, who used him? Yeah, and because they used him as a commentator, and he actually had, like, a cup of tea with I him. Think when he, he, you're talking about the Herb Abrams UWF? Yeah, I wasn't sure, because did that last until 95? Oh, uh, there was also the AWF. Yeah, I think it was that. I think the it was AWF that. AWF yeah. was, like, New York-based. They were the ones that were doing matches with rounds. Uh, yeah, did, they brought in, like, nails, and they brought in, yeah. like, so many... WWF names at that point. I think that was the AWF, and I think he was involved with that, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, in um in the UK, I think I don't know if we talked about this last time, but because World of Sport was on in the UK, it was an institution for you know a, a very long time, and then um once uh you know World of Sport ended, WWF ended up on ITV, which was like we only had um. Oh no, it was eighty. It was eighty six because the first show they showed was the Boston Garden where Savage beat Santana for the Intercontinental Belt. Um, right. But they they showed this on um, on ITV, and there was only a few episodes of this, hosted by Gene Oakland, and he did uh, special wraparounds just for the UK audience and everything. And um, Lord Alfred Hayes got introduced as Judo Al Hayes because that's how he was known in England, and they tried to use some of the terminology etc to try and the uh the old world of sport they even use the old world of sport theme for this wwf show and it's um i don't know the name of it but it's like real british sort of like when there's like there was clips of like big daddy doing his like belly bounce and then but in the cup with like hogan doing his leg drop and stuff it's so weird um but the yeah, it didn't last too long. I always assumed that it was kind of like a... Do you know how um, ECW was put on TNN as a tester to see if wrestling would work on the network? Um, like, I just... I have a feeling that Sky may have been behind WWF going on and would work for free. And oh. it would go on to Sky Sports and then people would have to pay for it. Yeah, that was a strategy, too, that WWF would do in a lot of markets, even in the US, when they would move in. They would try to make it seem like it was a smooth transition from the product that fans were used to. So like when they went into Toronto, it was still Maple Leaf Wrestling. They were producing a Maple Leaf Wrestling show for the Toronto market. When they went into St. Louis, they were still calling it Wrestling at the Chase, which was the old school name for the wrestling for the TV show in St. Louis. Um, I think in Houston, they were still calling it you know, Houston wrestling, and it was some of it was taped in the old Sam Houston Coliseum. So that sort of seems like part of their strategy. And I know, like, God, I remember, you know, the UK, I don't know how it is now. I don't think it's as much, but you'd probably know better than me. But at the time, I mean, it was like the hottest international market for WWE. Like, they just, they just ate it right up in like late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. It was huge. Um, I'm now a little bit depressed about it because I'm a big, uh, you know, student of wrestling history, as you know. And so, like, I, I love hearing about World of Sport and the Wigan style and Big Daddy and Robbie Brookside and all that kind of stuff. And I remember recently I, I interviewed um, Tyler Bate from NXT um, over the fact that, you know, when he became the the UK champion. And at that time, he was like 19 years old. And I remember asking him, um, you know, what he grew up on or like what he liked about wrestling in Britain. And I was really, you know, well, look, it's the passage of time. And what made me sad was the only wrestling he knew about was WWF because he was actually born, you know, in, in like 1997. So like, <laughs> he had no idea. He was like, yeah, world of sport. I guess like some of the old guys have mentioned that before. I really don't know a lot about it. And I was like, wow, this is really depressing. It really is. Yeah. When when I find myself older than a lot of wrestlers now, is just in far better shape than I am and you know achieving a lot more in life <laughs> um, but the thing is like sort of in the early 2000s 
Um, I don't know how familiar you are with like uh, Frontier Wrestling Alliance, the FWA. Um, they had a national. They were on national radio with Alex Shane, and uh, they were able to team up with a channel called Bravo, and they had some clout behind them. And their first show called Revival, which was, it really was an attempt at reviving British wrestling, and it, it gave it a good go, but. I would say that the revival has happened over the past few years, not in the early 2000s. I just don't think it was, we were probably still enraptured by WWF at that point, you know, the height of the Attitude Era and stuff like that. But Eddie Guerrero was on that show. Uh, Brian Christopher was on that show. And Dynamite Kid came out at the end as well. Um, and he presented trophies or belts uh, to the winners of the main event. And it was, it was a real special moment. Um, but I guess Tyler, you know, cause I was probably about 15, 16 at that point. So I, I remember it, but, uh, yeah, Tyler Bate would have been five years old. <laughs> well, there was, well, there was a world of sport that was started up again just a couple of years ago. I mean, they've since gone defunct, but uh, they, it was so they, bad. They had, what's his name? Uh, Wade Barrett. I don't, I don't remember what his real name is, but he was doing announcing. Stu Bennett. Um, Stu yeah. Bennett, right, Stu Bennett. Yeah, it didn't last long. I caught a couple of episodes of it, but I guess they were trying. Another thing, you know, of course, being American, my exposure to British culture very often comes from public television and in America. <laughs> and I remember something that always stuck with me was if you've ever seen the Monty Python sketch where it's like they basically have uh, – it's something like uh, – wrestling but it's like historical figures like like famous philosophers wrestling each other and and it starts out the skit where it's a simulation of actual like british wrestling on tv and uh -huh. they're you know they have the announcers talking i guess it's like a lampoon of like whoever the well-known you know world of sport announcer was in the 70s and you know it's the style of world of sport and it's this weird little time capsule because, you know, Monty Python is universally known to this day and World of Sport isn't so much. But when you watch that, you get this little window into this history of British wrestling. It's actually pretty cool. Um, the problem for me was they tried to make it look like WWE in terms of presentation. And I don't think that was, you know, um, Alex Shane's fault or anyone like that. I think it was ITV. Um, who wanted LED screens everywhere, and it just looked it looked horrible, uh, and they couldn't get away from. I, th I don't know. I just think that there was less understanding of what British wrestling fans would want in like 2016, 2017, and I think it showed when WWE, who in my opinion shouldn't be able to present a great british wrestling show did <laughs> with um the nxt uk stuff in terms of the surroundings you know blackpool tower and some of the buildings that they've used and it looks a bit more grimy and dirty it's like if there's one able to do grimy and dirty it, it's 2020 wwe but I, I think they have to make a conscious decision to be able to do that now like it's probably an effort for them to do that because they probably want to light it up and make it look you know, all fancy and everything, but they do, they've done a great job with NXT UK. I've got to say. I agree. And, and that the, the Walter and Tyler Bate match is one of the best matches I've seen in years. And, and it's really in that style. It's really in that tradition. It's, that is a, a very athletic, hard hitting match. You know, you can show something like that to someone who, 
who doesn't watch wrestling and is skeptical about it. And there really will be very little there for them to make fun of, let's just say. This is true. I think the only criticism that I hear about NXT UK is, you know, a few years ago, the NXT UK talent were still allowed to work a lot of the independent companies, um, which were just local to where my friends lived throughout the country. But once they started signing them up, um, you know, they basically, I mean, the, the WWE way, and I'm not blaming the wrestlers or WWE, it's just how it is. A lot of the big names that were drawing for those local companies were gone by that point. And, um, you know, but I think as a result of that, with, you know, ICW and uh, some of the companies in the UK, because I think it, 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 it the UK now, you know, has companies that are kind of a feeder system to WWE. Um, and I guess if it keeps those companies going, then great. And as long as, I guess, WWE kind of, I don't know, keep the keep the hands off it and allow them to have their own identity. Because, um, you know, I think it, things can have a, I guess, a, a, a problem of becoming a bit too homogenized if WWE has their hands on it. Do you agree? Or No, I do. I do. And look, uh, the, the greatest, the thing that nobody could ever knock WWE on is that their production values are state of the art and incredible. I mean, yeah. they know how to produce television. Uh, it, it's slick. It's perfect. And, you know, that's also the curse of it, right, is that it's a little too slick and perfect. And so for people that aren't into that and might want an alternative, you have the problem of everybody in the business trying to copy WWE and also WWE taking that same approach to every product they produce. Whereas you're right with the UK show, they're sort of resisting that. I feel like they were resisting it with NXT in America, but that's now it's started to basically just become like another WWE brand where just maybe on a slightly smaller scale, it, whereas early on it was sort of like their version of Ring of Honor. I don't know if I'd really call it that anymore. It's still it's still the best product they're producing by far, but it's not what it once was. But again, that's their thing. I mean, I know for me as a fan, I find it a little too antiseptic and perfect, you know, not having anybody at ringside, not having people milling around, not having photographers. You know, it almost looks like you're watching like um, – Disney on ice or something, you know, it's like it doesn't feel like a sporting event. And I do miss that aspect of, of wrestling where it really felt down and dirty, like you were watching a sporting event and guys were coming out of the locker room and they were just random people wandering around. You didn't know who the heck they were. <laughs> There'd be a table with, you know, the timekeeper and some like 99 year old like ring physician sitting there. And like, <laughs> you know, there are people that are glad that stuff isn't around anymore. And I'm not one of those people. I love that stuff. I think it really adds like it adds something to the product. It makes it feel like it's not just a product, you know, like you, you, you can suspend your disbelief more easily. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I love, uh, and the network doesn't have nearly enough of these, but the old Madison Square Garden shows where they would start filming someone from backstage. They never did it in Boston Garden or anything like that. Um, and they would come through the hallway out to the entrance and it would be, I don't know, Chief J Strongbow or something, but you, but 
in that locker room, you'd or in that hallway, you'd also see Arnold Scotland with his uh, cigar and just randomly just hanging about. It was it's, yeah. uh, like it's uh, yeah. well, it was very real. It it didn't feel overproduced. You know, now when yeah. they do those backstage segments, every aspect of it is completely controlled and produced. So anybody, and I can tell you this for a fact because I was one of those people. Anybody yeah. you see wandering around in the background is told to be there, and they're put there, and everything is completely blocked out. I was literally told where to walk, who to talk to. You know, this is why I always joke that it looks like everybody backstage in WWE is just constantly looking at their phones, and I'm wondering like how the hell they get anything done because any backstage segment is just these people standing there like statues looking on their phones. And, and that's something that they're being told to do. It's just, it's completely artificial, completely. That's true. I think there's a charm about the sort of, um, if you watch the end of WrestleMania 1, when uh, Hogan's getting interviewed uh, just past the entranceway, um, you hear at the end Vince McMahon have to start the cheer to get everyone to applaud, and that's how they go off air. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't... It's it's uh yeah it's um, <laughs> um it's a lot of fun. I kind of like the rawness of those uh, old garden shows, and they certainly need to put uh, put more on uh, on the network. Um, but with regards to shows changing, it's always they've always done that. I mean, if you look at um, and we talked about this because I asked if you interviewed Vince for the uh, the tenth anniversary Raw magazine, and you did. Um, and he talks about how Shock and Saturday Night was going to be uh you know, uh, the new room, you know, in terms of like being different uh, New York nightclubs, etc. And then after five weeks, Vince kind of got bored of the idea or Livewire when it first started, it had your know, call-ins and everything. And then that kind of went away. I think it's just, but it, it never seems to, except Raw, it never seems to become something better. It always seems to, Vince gets bored of the idea and then the next thing comes along, I guess. Yeah, and I don't know if it's so much getting bored, but I think sometimes what happens is, you know, there's a certain investment to doing things like that, investment of time and investment of effort and money. And I think after a while, what happens is you get people thinking like, why exactly are we doing this? What is this giving us? What what are we getting out of this? And if it doesn't and, and if the thought enters their minds of, well, we would have the same exact result if we just didn't put that effort in, well, then they're not going to do it. And that's kind of what happened with shotguns, what happened with Livewire. You know, it's like, well, why are we shooting a wrestling show at a dance club? It's really fun and cool, but how is it benefiting the company? And if it isn't, then they're not going to do it. Mm. See, I have a um, the sixth episode of uh, Shotgun was going to go back to the Mirage nightclub where the first one was held. And uh, I have a flyer for that <laughs> and then for whatever reason it just didn't happen so i'm guessing a lot of people showed up disappointed that uh they were going to see a wrestling show um and it uh, didn't happen i i'm a particular fan of that sort of late 96 early 97 period when they really started to let the shackles sort of loose sort yes. of thing but with, still within a wrestling context it wasn't just you know um the full-on attitude era of like sort of catchphrases and shocking for the sake of it it was kind of acknowledging the competition and um pushing the boundaries in some ways and you know it was a very sort of contemporary product at that yeah. time and um yeah. from the whole from basically from the austin 316 promo at king of the ring 96 right up to let's say i guess the montreal screw job in november 97 it was like this weird transition period. And I think 
it doesn't get enough credit that it deserves. It, I, I would I would really consider that part of the Attitude Era. And I remember at the time, um, I, I you know, WWE had AOL. They had like a big AOL presence. Do you remember that? And they oh, of course, had, yeah. They had all these message boards back then. This is even before WWF.com. I don't even think they existed yet. Or if they did, it was just basically really primitive. It was a lot of message boards. And I remember they had to shut it down, partly because there were fans that were, like, really very confused. And they were just going, like, what the hell is happening right now in WWF? Like, I don't understand. Like, Brian Pillman is making Terry Runnels his sex slave. <laughs> what What is happening right now? Like, Goldust has, like, a ball gag in his mouth. Like, people were – there were a lot of people that were fans before that – that were shocked by what they were seeing. And it took a while, a couple of years maybe, or a year for the fans to really get re-educated. But there was some shock and disbelief in the very beginning of that. Mm -hmm. And and there's, there is that episode of Live Wire, the week after Pillman with a gun, um, where they kind of had to be almost disgusted by their, by what happened in the sense that they, it was kind of like this weird fourth wall kind of kayfabe breaking, but not where they kind of were like, yeah, we went too far with that. We shouldn't have showed that, but it wasn't the fact it wasn't saying, oh, we shouldn't have told Pillman to do that. It was, we shouldn't have shown that. And they didn't show it again. Um, I don't think, I still don't think they've shown it again on TV since then ever. Uh, no, the Pillman with the gun. Never, and, yeah. Um, they were not happy with that at all. No, so that that weekend, everyone called in was saying, "Oh, I have a ten-year-old son. I would never let him watch WWE, WWF again, or whatever." And or you'd get people ringing in saying, "Oh, what do you think of the NWO?" Or Bruno should go in the Hall of Fame and stuff like that. It just, I don't know. There's there's something about mid '90s events that I would totally hang out with. Like he just seemed like more open to talking about stuff like that. Um, yeah, but, he was a weird period where. I don't know if you remember, it was, I think it was just, he basically was just thinking, well, I got to try something, you know, and he was just more open to crazy stuff. I remember there was this weird mid nineties period where he would on commentary, give the real names of, of, of talent. Like, like, like he would, uh, I remember you bring up Mantor. He's an example. I remember him saying, this is Mike Halleck. He was a great wrestler in college and blah, blah, blah. And now, you know, he's Mantor. And I'm going like, did I just hear that? Did, did did Vince just reveal that this guy is not actually, you know, a human bull hybrid? That he that he had a real name and background? Like, you know, that was the first. But but I think it was part of that. Hey, let's just try different things. Let's be more open. Let's be more honest with our fans and not insult their intelligence. I think there was some of that going on. I always find though with that kind of thing that it was it was always very short lived, like maybe for one show. Like when the Mountie came back, uh, Vince acknowledged that he was uh, Jacques Rougeau and he went to I don't know Mountie school or something like that. But it was just <laughs> explain it once and then it's there. And yes, they would so, do that a lot. They would do yeah. that a lot. I remember um, they did it with IRS. Uh, when he came out, they did mention that he had been Mike Rotundo and he was a tag team champion. But they, like you said, they would do it the first time. When Ricky Steamboat was the dragon and only the dragon, <laughs> they did mention that he was Ricky Steamboat. But they just like just that one time. Uh, there were a few guys like that. I'm trying to think of some others. But I think Colonel, Colonel Mustafa, I think they did it with as well. They did. Um, 
did. Oh yeah, well there's the famous moment where um in SummerSlam 91 where it's Mustafa and Slaughter and Adnan against uh Hogan and the Warrior, right? I think it's no, it's, is it 91? It's uh, It's 91, it, yeah. The match made in hell. Yeah. yeah, the match made in hell where you know uh Mustafa has Hogan in the camel clutch. And Roddy Piper says something like, I remember back in 84 when, when you know, this this exact scene was play, playing out. And again, I'm watching it going like, wow, they're actually acknowledging that he was the Iron Sheik. I'm impressed. I, I think my favorite one of this, and this is a Piper one as well, the first time that um, Tony Atlas came out with Saba Simba and Piper was just legitimately disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> this like sort of racial appropriation gimmick was you know and it is one of the most shockingly offensive gimmicks like ever and <laughs> um, he was babyface like, too he was babyface and it's just like him and Vince are on commentary and Vince is like Sabah Simba and Piper's like come on it's Tony Atlas you know he's a world class power ranger uh, power ranger uh, power lifter he might be the world class power ranger I don't know um, but you know and um I guess he rediscovered his roots or something like that. And it's just, they were going to do, um, they must have toured with this um, on like the sea shows or something, but they were doing him against Alpha Africa. <laughs> oh, God. And it's just like, oh, like this is right after like the height of apartheid and stuff like that. And it's just like, yeah, this, you know, gonna... it, it was never going to be a match on a pay-per-view. I don't think the battle for Africa, but yeah. <laughs> Surprised they didn't bring in Colonel De Beers for that. That Vince, I thought Vince would have loved. But you know, another one I'm thinking of too is um, Mr. Perfect. I think maybe like I think the first time or two that they brought him in, they would say like, remember Mean Gene saying Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig, but that that went away really quickly. I know a great example of a situation where there was a lot of pushback was with Kerry Von Erich. Now, now, Kerry Von Erich was very commonly, they would call him the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich. Uh, but a lot of times they would just say Texas Tornado. But but every now and then they would they would again reinforce his name. And I think that was partly at his insistence. They wanted him to be just the Texas Tornado. And there was a lot of pushback of him saying, and rightfully so, you know, my family has this recognized name in wrestling that we've worked very hard to establish and i don't want to just throw it away and i think it was a compromise um they did not want to use his name and he did and they just sort of met in the middle somewhere it's it's really odd as well because vince was you know really into the idea it seems of bringing in the von erickson 84 um Or maybe a little bit earlier when the, he was kind of like on that All-American show back in the early days when they were talking about wrestlers from different organizations, which just foreign now. Um, they when you think about it, like, you know, how open they were to doing that. Yeah. In fact, uh, when David Von Erich died, they announced it on WWF Championship Wrestling and rang the 10 bell salute. Um, wow. And, yeah. And he hadn't even been on their show, but. It was, you know, they announced it and, you know, talking about weird things that I found that has to do with that. I remember being in the video vault, which is far more impressive than the photo one. And <laughs> and at that time, it was still tapes, those giant master tapes. Right. And I found a tape of the Von Erics. And it was like it was like a, a highlight reel of. Uh, you know, them wrestling, them like riding horses and all this kind of stuff. 
And what I was able to surmise was it was one of these things where they had asked for some footage like that, probably from Fritz von Erich's office from world class as a way of introducing them in the hopes that they would be bringing them in, which they didn't, but they did have that footage. So there really was a serious plan to bring those guys in. They, you know, that was during the era where Vince was really looking at, um, Vince was really looking at his show, his national takeover as almost like the justice league of professional wrestling. Like he was, (laughs) picking the, the the top names of every organization and creating this super organization. So the Von Erichs were a no brainer for that. But but I think there was a there was a different mindset by the time you get to like say nineteen ninety where he really was all about like he had fully established himself as a national company. The product was a lot more clean and in its own little bubble by that point. They were not acknowledging any other companies at all. And they were all about just completely rebranding and reinventing people. You know, they were happy to take you on if you had a lot of experience because it meant that you could really work well in the ring and you knew what you were doing. But they did not want to use any of your history to market you in any way. They wanted to completely own you like you just walked off of a spaceship and just started wrestling for them that day. That's really how they wanted everyone to look at you. Yeah, I think the only person where they really couldn't do that with was Ric Flair. Um, right. right, he was a great he, example. They couldn't, they couldn't. Even then, though, the, they were like, we don't know where you got the belt from, or, you know, um, you <laughs> know, Gorilla Monsoon would joke that he's been, Bobby Heenan held it so long that his fingers turned green because it was just a bit of, you know. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but you know that first um the challenge where heenan and uh nightheart and monsoon are on commentary and heenan brings out the belt for the first time i mean it can't be overstated how shocking that was um and yeah I've, i've you know flair was i think they wanted to get away from it as quickly as possible which is why they put the belt on him anyway and um so then they didn't have to acknowledge his history, I guess. But one thing I found interesting when Jim Ross came onto the commentary team, um, he did a lot of the early, he did a lot of the Coliseum videos in 93 with Savage and Heenan, because I guess the Minion 9 commentary was deemed a success. And, you know, it was very entertaining. Um, but I think they were kind of ever on those Coliseum videos. So Jim Ross would say that Teddy BRC was a second generation wrestler and Mike Rotunda did go to the University of Syracuse and all that kind of thing. I think if Vince had heard any of that stuff, I don't think it would have um I don't think it would have got out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean that was that was what they were getting with him though. It's so funny. They you know that's what made Jim Ross great. And then I, I always get frustrated when they would bring people in based on the merits of what they had done and then not want them to do any of the things that made them valuable to bring in. Uh, <laughs> even with Ric Flair, um, yes, they he was the only one that they acknowledged having a past, but they really tried to still cartoonify and homogenize him as much as possible where, you know, they, they didn't call him Nature Boy. That was gone. Uh, none of the, you know, um, he was constantly dressed only in his robe. You know, as if like he just got up in the morning and just put on a wrestling <laughs> robe and just wore it all day. Like there was no more of Ric Flair in the three piece suits and with the sunglasses and the women. It was just he really was. He still was Ric Flair, 
but he was a cartoon caricature of Ric Flair. Mm. And, and and I think that you know you know it's a bit of a, a bit of a leap, but I think it just shows how little they had changed by the time um, someone like Colin Delaney had come in. And I've done a lot of shows with Colin, um, and he's he's a you know a great guy and everything. He had to do a backstage thing one day, and he's the only you know five foot seven, hundred and fifty pound wrestler on the roster at that point. Um, but they said that he had to be in ring gear for this uh, backstage uh, segment because they didn't want him to be confused with anyone else. And he's like, who am I going to get confused with? You know, um, but so, yeah, he had to like, you know, I think he may have even had to go home to get his ring gear because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't to hand at that point. But uh, yeah, no, um, WWE are definitely uniquely, um, what's the word? Um, Oh, I don't know. Um, Whitewash? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, sort of. Um, I'm trying to think of a more um, subtle way of. Co- yeah, no, they are. They're just weird. Um, what what other companies would do is, of course, guys had gimmicks, but you never lost the impression that these were real people. These were athletes. They were professional wrestlers that took on a gimmick in order to help them become more successful, right? In WWF, it was literally like these guys are not even human beings. Like they are just like Hercules is actually Hercules, like from Olympus. Like he's not like he's not Hercules Hernandez. He's not like, you know, uh, like a Hispanic wrestler who calls himself Hercules because he has big muscles. He actually is the son of Zeus. Like that's, <laughs> that's the difference between the WWF approach and other people. Like like uh, John Nord is an actual Viking who got <laughs> on a on a boat from like the Scandinavia. You know, he is not a wrestler who is putting on a persona. He really is this. And that was like what they did. And that's why they always got accused of being so cartoonish, you know, because like, okay, you know, you'd have guys with gimmicks in every company, but it was always like, you know, of course you had, uh, you had exceptions, like people like Kamala, you know, obviously who we were supposed to believe like walked right off of the, out of the, 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 the Serengeti somewhere, you know, but for the most part, there was more realism in the gimmicks in other, in other organizations. That is true. And, but the thing, I know you talk about, WWF being you know, hot in the early to mid nineties, I I would stand by that it was probably hotter then in the UK than it even was during the Attitude Era. I mean, and I know that's quite a um, a bold statement to make, but in ninety two, you know, uh, the WrestleMania album hit the top ten, um, and the Slam Jam single they, they sold out Wembley Stadium. I, you know, they could have done that during the Attitude Era, but they didn't try to do that. And you would have thought that if they, you know, but I guess they were doing so well in America at that point that they didn't need to try to do that. Um, but if you look at the amount of wrestlers that were on mainstream television, WWF uh, wrestlers uh, doing all sorts of weird things, you'll ah, oh, I've got to give you this link. Um, there was one of my favorite rest. I mean, this was a WCW thing, but one of my favorite wrestling TV appearances of all time. Uh, we had a British TV show. Uh, like a morning show called the big breakfast. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. Um, it was sort of very nineties, colorful, wacky, you know, off the wall, slightly rude. It shouldn't have been shown at like eight in the morning sort of thing. Um, and they had this, uh, 
one of the biggest comedians in this country called Paul O'Grady, he played a drag character uh, called Lily Savage. And they had Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage uh, as guests that day. And they would do this interview on a bed because uh, it was hosted from a, a giant house. And um, Lily Savage is like like lying next to like, like this six foot two drag queen is lying next to Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan on this bed uh, talking about like sort of, you know, um, whether they would do like tag teaming and whether they were into freeways and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's insane. Um, I not know about this. I need, oh, I need this. It's, it's so funny. It really – Hogan seems – I think Hogan can be up for a laugh, but Randy Savage, you know, he, he sort of strikes me as the sort of like mega serious sort of one. And But on this one, he just doesn't care. They were in full ring gear, and um, it's just – Oh, it, like they say, oh, we need a valet now that we that we don't have Elizabeth anymore. So Lily Savage is like, right, I'll be your valet. And they're like, can you hit someone over the head with a shoe? And she's like, are you joking? Of course I can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's so good. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give you some, link, some links of some of the weirder uh, appearances on British TV of some uh, WWF wrestlers. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Um, yeah. Sorry, uh, go for it. No, I was going to say that. I do believe that that was their hottest... That was the hottest period for WWF uh, over there was that early 90s period where even just the success of Davey Boy Smith and how the big push he got was a big part of that. I mean, you look at SummerSlam 92 in Wembley, right? Now, where your main event, the, the closing the show, is Bret Hart versus Davey Boy Smith. Now, that was the first WWF pay-per-view ever up to that point that didn't have Hulk Hogan on it and yeah, and that yeah. did not have the show ending with Hulk Hogan doing his pose down like like every show ended that way right i mean people that grew up watching wrestling back then that was the end of every major WWF event and just the fact that they decided in that moment like okay we don't have Hogan right now what are we going to do and that's what they went with it speaks volumes as to how much he was being pushed and how over he was that that they they were in the Hogan position basically British Bulldog and Bret Hart, and and it's insane that Bulldog would be gone out of the company by the end of the year, and I think WWF slightly suffered in the UK because of that, and WCW picking up the Bulldog were able to have successful UK tours. They were able to get on ITV in '93, '92, and I think Bulldog was a large um, reason behind that as well. Um and yeah no uh SummerSlam ninety two is uh again I was gonna ask you something completely random about that but uh it's the first thing that goes with age you see uh the memory uh, <laughs> I'm older than you come on come on <laughs> but yeah no um you know ninety two uh, WWF um with, I was gonna go somewhere completely random with that we'll well cut this out we did. <laughs> Did you have a Max Moon question? Is that what it was? I, I did interview Paul Diamond. Um, huh? He was he was a he was a nice guy. Um, but he was just about to go in for um, oh god um, shoulder replacement surgery and both of his knees or something like that. Because I mean Paul Diamond, you know, did insane things for his time. 
Um, and I think it all caught up with him. But he still did an interview with me like about two days before he went in for surgery. And just such a nice dude. And um, he was um, he was really angry because someone had stolen his Max Moon costume because he was going to do the uh, the conventions as Max Moon again, which um, I would have been all over. Um, well, now he's got to now he's got to just do it as Cato instead. <laughs> it's not really the same, I guess. I don't know. It, it's not the same. See, I didn't realize when I until I saw pictures of Bad Company um, how. I, I don't know. I can't believe how much mesh they wore. Like these weren't good-looking guys to be doing that. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, look at the fabulous ones. I mean, uh, you know, enough said, right there. Stan Lane was a handsome man. <laughs> okay. You know what? Okay, they were both ruggedly handsome. I'll give you. I'll give you that. Yes, that's true. Yeah. See, Steve Kern. When you look at Miss Skinner, you would never have guessed that he was. Uh... I know. At one point. <laughs> I, I, I often wonder like what he thought of that. I mean, I don't know if you ever spoke to him because I mean, I'm sure he was very happy with the money that he was making. But just to think like, OK, I used to be this sex symbol. My gimmick was that I was basically a male stripper. And now I'm like this gr- grungy, filthy guy from the Florida Everglades spitting tobacco. Like what what happened to me? You know, I, I wonder what he thought about that. Was was there ever when you were with WWE? Um, did they acknowledge the fact that female and I mean, obviously with the divas and everything, you know, there was a high, um, I, I guess, a, a sexual appeal to WWE or WWF during the Attitude Era and years after that as well. Um, did they ever acknowledge that with like the guys for like the gay audience or for like the ladies who were into the guys? Well, like you mean, like in terms of how they marketed talent? Yeah, because you know they never did the sort of you know um, guys in their underwear calendar, but they always did like the divas calendar and yeah. stuff like that. Well, it, it's a sexist business. I mean, for all the talk <laughs> of for all the talk of homoeroticism in wrestling, I think pretty much all of it is has been sort of unintentional and and subconscious, because I just think that it's such a sexist business that. I think they very rarely have ever thought to market anything um, directly to women in a sexual way or to gay men in a sexual way. I mean, other than just by just the nature of what it is, you know, just (laughs) these giant, you know, oiled up guys rolling on the floor with each other. But I mean, other than that, I I think I mean, I think the Shawn Michaels phenomenon, I have to say, and I know Bret Hart had a lot of fun with this. I think that was partly a little bit of that where they were marketing towards uh, they were sexualizing him for women and whether or not they would directly admit it also for gay men as well. I do think that was an experiment in that direction, but it's not something that has been done too often for sure. Yeah. Brett in Germany was, I mean, the definition, he was like Hasselhoff in terms of sex symbol status. Um, you know, uh, yeah, the German fan. And it, the, there are Brett photo shoots that he did specifically for Germany, which are ever so slightly more suggestive. Yeah. Um, and there are sort of interviews with uh, German when he did the, the UK or the, the European tours, uh, they would have specific German um, announcers and everything who would 
talk to him about the fact that he was a sex symbol and all that. So I th- he totally recognised it, you know. Um, it, this is a funny story. Ahmed Johnson, <laughs> who I was able to get a very rare interview with, um, right. he, he told me, and this wasn't on air, so, like, this is, you know, he may kill me for this, but I don't think he would... I don't I don't think Ahmed Johnson's going to be listening to this interview, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> um, he told... Do you remember the photo shoot that he did in his denim hot pants with the dog and everything? I don't know right. if you'll... Yeah, he's Johnson. Oh, Johnson. Yeah. Yes, I I do remember that. Yes. (laughs) Well, he said that that was the biggest selling issue of WWF magazine specifically to gay fans. I'm like, I don't know how you would know this. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he definitely had a he had a high opinion of it. He also told me that he had a 12 inch dick as well, which I was just like, okay. Um, well, I know that uh, now that we're going to go down this rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. No, please. Come on. <laughs> I'll tell you that I think there was a story involving him and Sonny, which I don't know it either it happened. He denied. Or... I asked him about it. Um, yeah. And he was like, nope, because uh, he said he was married and he said that his wife would have killed him. So, oh, yeah, because that never stopped any of those guys <laughs> or girls. Yeah, I, but I don't remember the details of it. But it's on—it's one of those stories that floats around of where, I guess, because uh, I mean, God, she was married to Candido at the time, and I, you know, I—I I don't know, but I—I've heard that, and I've heard various things you hear about people that have endowment. Um, Al- Alfred Hayes, wasn't he? Um... Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Two Cold Scorpio <laughs> is another one. Two Cold Scorpio. Um, legendary in that area and and this this is this is one for the real old school fans the story was that antonino rocca extremely blessed <laughs> in that department uh, well, there's a story in luthez's autobiography about it honest to god oh please tell me because well my friend michael has a signed copy of hooker uh, okay. personalized him as well i'm just like i don't get jealous that much of like things like that I have- but I, you have one Yes, I do. Uh, it, it's it's a it's actually a manuscript. It's not even a published. It's a man, It's a bound manuscript signed by Luthez to me. And yeah, there's a story in there uh, where he says, <laughs> where there. So he had he, he had very little respect for Raka because, you know, I, I used to think this was so awesome about Thez when I was younger. Like he was such a badass, and you know, he was a real wrestler, and the other guys were clowns. The older I get, the more I start to think, God help me, I really hope Charlie Thez isn't listening to this. But the more I start to think of him as a, a bit of an asshole, you know, that he didn't totally understand what wrestling was. And, you know, he thought he was like Frank Gotch or something. And and wrestling already by that point was already a cartoon, you know, by his era. And so, but anyway, he he, he had limited respect for guys like Buddy Rogers and Antonino Rocca because he saw them strictly as performers, which they were, you know. And he was more of like an actual wrestler, even though he never had an actual shoot before paying customers in his entire life. But that's the way he looked at Raka. And I remember there was a story in the book where they're in the locker room and Raka apparently liked to kind of show this off to the boys to show off that what he had going on. Uh. And apparently he's laying he's laying on one of those locker room benches, those long benches, and he's totally naked. And his, you know, member, they whatever you want to call it, is basically <laughs> like past his belly button or something like that. He's just like, and I don't even think it was, I, I don't even think he was any kind of st- state of arousal and That's he's laying there just basically showing off. 
And he said something to Thez like, and I try to imagine, I can't do, you know, his Italian accent, but I'm, you know, in his accent, I imagine it. He said something to Thez like, well, you know, Blue, you know, you may be able to wrestle as much, much better than me, but you don't have anything like this. And Thez <laughs> said something back to him like, yeah, Tony, that's because I'm not a gorilla or something <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> oh, Oh, see, this is why we need to do many more parts of this. I think this is, you know, um, the avenues that we could go down with this. I've got, we've got to leave it on this before we talk about um, the projects that you're working on at the moment, where can, people can find you. There's a story that Bobby Heenan once told about uh, Little Beaver and Paul Orndorff. I don't know if you know the story or not. Um, but it's already starting off great. <laughs> well, there's beaver all over this place, called uh, Bob Uecker, you know. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, any well, so yeah. Um, can I tell another story actually in this vein? I know you wanted to go, but just it's a quick one. Oh, please do. Yeah. So I remember hearing a story that they told me it was about Freddie Blassie, where uh, these and wrestlers are weird. They're just weird people. <laughs> there was a mark who would show up backstage. He would go to like the back door of the arena and he would try to get in and he was trying to become a wrestler. And Blassie decided to pull a rib and said he was going to train him one day. And he had this kid, he said to him, you know, get down and give me like 50 push-ups, right? And, and you turn the other way, I, you know, don't look at me. I don't want to look at you. And he turned the other way and he's doing these push-ups. And what Blassie apparently did was he got behind the kid, he pulled his pants down and he's hanging like over his head so that every time his head comes up in the push-ups, he's hitting like Blassie's cock and balls. Like, but he doesn't realize it. And he's just doing it over and over and over again. And people are watching and laughing. And it's this whole humiliating thing. So, so yeah, that's the kind of stuff that goes on. Oh, different type. This is the type of stuff that would not – especially after this year with the whole Me Too oh, wrestling who, movement. Oh, yeah. And, and you mentioned Lord Alfred Hayes. That was one of the craziest things. Someone in the office mentioned it once. You know, Lord, Lord Alfred Hayes had an enormous dick. And I remember it going like, really? Lord Alfred Hayes? I, I wouldn't have thought that. I think it might have been, oh, you know what? It was Roddy Piper who said it. Somebody, somebody talked to Roddy Piper in an interview. Not me, even though I did interview Piper. It was a different interview. And he uh. said, Piper was the one that mentioned it, that Lord Alfred H had a huge dick. And I don't, and there was a story attached to it, but I don't remember what the story was. Uh, oh, well, the, the Little Beaver thing, because, uh, I mean, I don't know if people know, but Little Beaver was gay. Um, didn't know. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And, um... How ironic. <laughs> uh, so that, that's top-level humor right there. Um, so, yeah, there's a mixed tag team match with Little Beaver and... Uh, uh, you know, maybe Hillbilly Jim or something against Paul Orndorff and uh, I think Bobby Heenan or another, you know, maybe Little Tokyo or something like that. But uh, Bobby Heenan is a rib, uh, says um, with and I'm, I'm going to be completely politically incorrect here, but uh, he says, you know, to Paul, um, who's paranoid anyway and very angry and just ready to kill people <laughs> like, you know, um, <laughs> He tells Paul Orndorff, uh, Little Beaver, you know, because there's a spot where you're going to pick him up for a body slam. And um, just so you know, midgets, when picked up and turned upside down, they lose their balance. So what they do is grab a hold of your dick for balance. <laughs> and Paul Orndorff's like, he's not doing that to me. <laughs> and then Bobby, you know, like, well, I 
I'm just telling you that's what's gonna have to happen if you're gonna do the if you're gonna do the spot. So <laughs> little Peter comes in for the spot. Paul Lodoff knocks him out. Just legit. <laughs> oh, the poor little guy. Damn it. <laughs> well, apparently the Bundy. I mean, Beaver blamed Bundy for Mania Free, saying that that was the end of his career legitimately. Yeah, um, and, and he had been wrestling for a very long time at that point. I think more than thirty years. Mm-hmm. There's a little Beaver biography out there as well. I don't know when it came out, but um, I don't know if you had anything to do with that. Hmm. Oh, I, I don't know. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, because I, 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 I mean, out of like curiosity, I was, you know, I was like sort of a, a little while back. What happened to Haiti Kid? What happened to Little Tokyo, etc.? And obviously, they're all gone now. But Little Tokyo only died about three or four years ago, I believe. Um, and he yeah. was in his like mid to late seventies or something like that, which. Uh, there's I guess some of those yeah. guys around, uh, and I know Little Louie is still around, I think, and Farmer Pete, who had, who goes back, you know, uh, God, he was back to the 70s. I think he's still floating around, not wrestling anymore. But well, still Tiger still Jackson's around. obviously still around, and um, yeah. yeah, I think um, the guy who played Cheesy, um, he passed away not long ago, and I was doing an interview with Dalton Castle um, a couple of years ago, and it was the week that Cheesy died, and I, I put out a really heartfelt um, tribute to Cheesy, because I love that match at Survivor Series with the little kings and the little clowns, and uh, I think it just confused Dalton Castle. <laughs> that would like pay tribute to Cheesy at the beginning of the show. Um, <laughs> I hope you at least mentioned his real name. Poor guy. <laughs> I don't think I did. <laughs> oh God! Because I'm sure he also had a whole career. I, you know, I don't, I'm not familiar with it. Using whatever name he yeah, used. they all like sort of wrestled under different uh, guises, didn't they? So, yeah. Yes. Um. So with um with Wink and because obviously Tiger Jackson was a you know is is was a wrestler, but I don't know if Wink and Pink were they. Do you know who they were under the masks? Or? I think everybody in there, all those guys were actual midget wrestlers i know i think that little louie might have been one of those guys i'm not 100 percent sure he was he was he was um oh god um he was queasy <laughs> i shouldn't know this it's poor guys because yeah. sleazy was the one with the mustache and the hairy back um and little louie was kind of the more pudgy yeah. guy uh with yeah. the mustache and, and he did that i think he did the spot on pink where he picked him up upside down on his head and then just spun him and he did like a little breakdance like about five spins on his head like, i've never seen anything quite like that before or since classic classic uh-huh. so yeah no, no okay so we've went we've went way past the one hour broadway here so um and i feel like we could uh more of this because uh, there's so many avenues that we can go down here but um yes yeah, so f- um for those listening you have a book coming out in 2021 don't you yeah, well, it's been pushed to 2022 now because of COVID. So it's um, it's the first biography of the original Sheik, who never had a book done on him, which I thought was a travesty. And I wanted to correct that uh, because he is probably the greatest heel of all time, at least in terms of drawing money in, in you know, in, in those days. He was incredible. And I thought Bob, his Bobby Heenan says he was the greatest heel as well. Yeah, I mean, so many people copied from him. People that I think beyond just the obvious, like other people that played Sheik characters, there were a lot of it. Randy Savage borrowed tons from the Sheik's act. And I talk about that in the book. And and, and he got started with the Sheik. And, and there's a lot of people that don't. His story is unfortunately kind of fading away a bit because, you know, he 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 stopped wrestling on a national level 
even before the WWE expansion in the 80s. He was already a relic by then. So a lot of people don't know as much about him as they should because he's one of the all-time greats. So it's called Blood and Fire, the unbelievable true story of wrestling's original Sheik. I'm I'm hard at work on the actual writing now. I'm right smack dab in the middle. I'm on like chapter nine out of 18 chapters. And um, originally I was supposed to be submitting the manuscript next month. And the book was going to be coming out in um, probably late 2021. But with a combination of COVID and professional and personal things going on, I mean, I don't have to tell people how crazy the world is right now. <laughs> It slowed the process down, and I asked for an extension, and ECW Press was nice enough to grant me one. So now, basically, it's looking like the book is going to be coming out uh, probably, I would say, uh, in it's looking like about March of 2022. That, that's... Is, the she, um, is she still with us? No, no. That's another part of the struggle here. So he died in 2003 and um, his so and, and, and most of the people that he worked with and his peers and people that were really at his level are, are largely gone. And so it's a bit of a challenge because his family has not participated in the project for various reasons. You know, I guess they, they want to kind of do their own book. And one of his sons recently passed away. So he just he has the one son remaining who really is kind of not really wanting to take part. So so but I've tried to reach out to as many people as I can. And I've gotten a lot of great interviews, people that are still around and that still know stuff. Like I talked to Terry Funk, who was great. I talked to Kevin Sullivan, who, you know, idolized Sheik. I talked to Flying Fred Curry, who was, you know, one of the big stars of Sheik's big time wrestling in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. And not a lot of those guys left. Uh, I talked to a lot of guys like that, um, and I, I have I'm, a really. I'm assuming you got hold of uh, Sabu and RVD. Uh, RVD, yes, and in fact, RVD is going to be writing the introduction to the book. Um, Sabu uh, again was a valiant effort on my part, but I was not able to pull that off for the same reason I couldn't get Abdullah the Butcher. Is some of these guys, they really won't look at you unless you pay them, and I'm sure, Pablo, you must know this struggle as well as I do. <laughs> Some of these guys <laughs> will not talk to you. And it's not the policy of any of a book like this to pay people for interviews. And so that has disqualified some people. That was a heartbreaker for me. But, you know, I have Sabu's book. Uh, his ghostwriter, Kenny Casanova, recommended that I use that book because there is a lot of great stuff about the Sheik in there. I have things like that. But no, I was not able to directly interview Sabu for the book, unfortunately. But I, and you know, for for those wanting to buy the book, I'm sure that they realize that. I mean, there there are so many books out there about subjects that aren't directly connected with the person that they're writing about, or about even the territory. And there's some of the best books that I've read. Um, you know, Bertrand he under the giant need look no further than that in terms of, for me, one of the greatest books released certainly over the past you know 10, 20 years. Um, and I'm sure this one's going to be incredible as well. I mean, was there ever a, a book written about his territory? Um, well, I'll, I'm going to get killed here if I make a mistake on this. I know yeah. there was, there was a, a record book that was put out, which I have, and it's priceless. But it's it's really a statistics book. It gives the results of every big-time wrestling show from 1964 to 1980. 
But to my knowledge, there has never been specifically, there was a documentary made, very good one by Mike, Mike Nowatarski, but there's never been a book. And another reason I jumped on this opportunity is I do feel like the Detroit territory kind of gets lost in the shuffle here when people talk about territorial wrestling. It was an enormously hot territory, huge business. Kobo Arena was like the Madison Square Garden of the Midwest. I mean, these shows were huge. This territory was hot. It just went down in flames is the problem. It really crashed and burned. And even by the mid-80s when the wrestling boom was happening, it was already gone. So a lot of times it's not talked about. So I really wanted to do something to help bring it back to the forefront and help educate newer fans, in addition to pleasing the older fans, but also educate newer fans as to you know, the importance, not just of the Sheik, but of his territory. A lot of the book is also about the history of Detroit area wrestling. That's part of it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, you know, I'm not as knowledgeable about, you know, the Sheik's territory um, as I am about some of the other uh, territories throughout the, you know, 60s to the 80s specifically, um, you know, because um, there are some people who know literally everything about everything, you know, <laughs> um, whereas I've seen too many Truth Commission matches and, um, you know, that kind of knocks out some of like valuable information like pin numbers and birthdays and stuff like that. You know, you can watch too many Kurgan matches, I think. Um, well, there's not a lot of footage left. That's part of the problem, too. Of the Truth Commission or of... There's way too much footage of the truth no. but uh, no but like when when people like to go back and and it's a shame even for people that grew up on the detroit wrestling it's a heartbreaker for them because they want to relive it and they yeah. can't really in the way that you know if you're a mid-atlantic fan god you got more stuff than you know what to do with if you're a memphis fan there's territories where there's so much stuff around thank goodness Detroit is not one of them. You know, one of the mysteries is actually whatever happened to all the Detroit footage. People don't know. Um, there, some people claim that the Farhat family, Sheik's family, is in possession of it. I've heard stories that it was sold to a distributor, and then from there on, we don't know what happened to it. But there's there's just a handful of shows and matches floating around that you could find on YouTube and other places. There's there's like a, there's like a handful of full length shows, like maybe less than ten or something like that. There's just not a lot out there for people to try to discover. So it's one of those things that's going to like fade away into the mists of time if somebody doesn't make an effort to preserve it. I, I do think that it will day eventually. I think these things always seem to happen. Um, you know, it, and it's kind of good to know that it's not just assumed that even back then that they just reused tapes and taped over shows. Um, I think they were doing that for part of it, but then, but the, by the time you get to uh, this, I would have to say probably by the early seventies, most mm -hmm. wrestling companies already were starting to preserve their tapes. You know, it's not even just a wrestling thing. Um, that was a TV thing. If you go back b before the seventies, nobody kept tapes unless it was something that was like shot on film or, or something like that. It, it, there were so many shows where things were taped over. I mean, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, yep, everything yep. in the 60s was taped over. There's almost nothing of the Johnny Carson – of the like the first decade of Johnny Carson's show for the same we thing. Had, uh, we had a show called uh, Top of the Pops, which was just a right. big music show over here. And a lot of the 60s shows are gone as well. And that's like Beatles performances, et cetera. And um, some of them um, – you know, I'm a huge fan of the band Queen. And uh, there was a lot – lost like really early on and 
they found it. There was an actor called Max Bygraves who was like a big comedy actor in this country, and he recorded having a v- VCR in the 70s was really rare. You had to be rich. So it was kind of a novelty that you'd just fill up tapes of anything just because you could, and you could build up your own library and stuff. So once he died, or once the estate uh, decided to just empty the house or whatever, they found all these uh, videos of just TV shows from the 70s that were lost to the mist of time. And in that was that Lost Queen performance. And, you know, I think it's cool when things like that happen. It's like the Bret Hart Tom McGee match. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a another kind of legendary lost match, which was found or the the Battle of Atlanta was another one. The Tommy Rich Buzz Sawyer Atlanta Omni match that they, they dug up and put on WWE Network. People thought that was lost. Um, mm-hmm. all, and with the UK, too, uh, I remember over here, a lot of people, a lot of Doctor Who fans, you know, kind of like uh, wringing their hands over the all those early Doctor Whos that are lost because the BBC just. They just didn't care. They were they were like any other TV production house in those days. They didn't see the long-term value of saving this stuff. They just didn't understand that it would be able to be monetized beyond its original broadcast. This is true. Oh, well, th- I mean, this is a whole different conversation that I think yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely save for next time. But yes, um, where can people find you? Um, you're still very much contributing with uh, PWI at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I'm, I'm a regular monthly contributor to PWI these days, which is very exciting for me because I, I, I've contributed for years to them, but it's only in the past few months that I've come on, uh, you know, as a regular staff member. So and there's also there's a new wrestling magazine. Well, you may know this one because I think they're published in the UK, you know, Inside the Ropes. Yeah. Huh? Kenny McIntosh. Yeah. yeah. So they've only put out a handful of issues, but I'm going to be with them starting with the December issue. I've got an article on the origins of the Royal Rumble coming out in there. Nice. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's two magazines and the book. Um, if people want to find me on social media, can I do that? Can I? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Where can people find you? So I, I uh, on Twitter, I'm Brian R. Solomon. And actually, most of my Twitter stuff is wrestling related. Brian R. Solomon. Um, on Instagram, I'm Brian Solomon author, and I put some of my professional stuff on there too. And and on Facebook, actually, for the wrestling stuff, if people search Pro Wrestling FAQ, which was the title of one of my books, uh, they will find uh, my Facebook page where I really update all the time about the, the progress and the status of the Sheik book. So if that's what you're looking for, that's a great place to look too. Amazing. Well, uh, you know, I mean, this has been uh, rescheduled probably about 100 times now, and that's been, you know, largely my fault. Um, <laughs> but it's yeah, been inc- <laughs> <laughs> it's been incredibly worth it. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we can do more of this because, uh, again, we I think we, this is probably the single most diverse show ever recorded. Um, we've talked about everything from Lord Alfred Hayes' dick um, to, you know, the Truth Commission to, you know, to everything else to little beaver so yeah i'm i'm quite happy with that i think th- i think this episode should win awards i don't know if there are awards for this kind of thing but um you know this will be the one i think i think promotional consideration was paid for by <laughs> lord alfred Pick, actually <laughs> beautiful I, I i we've peaked we can't uh, we can't go any further than that so yeah sorry <laughs> okay <laughs> Okay, well, thank you all for checking out this um, longer-than-expected episode of Tone Chuckle, but I'm sure you'll agree that it was a lot of fun, and um, we will see you all next time.